Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. As an artist, it can be challenging to find ways of sharing your work with the world. And if you are part of a minority, it can be even more difficult. Later this hour, we'll hear about Slug Global, a marketing agency with a mission to elevate black and brown voices in the art world. Led by Bosco, the Atlanta-based R&B artist. First, Essential Theater is the longest-running theater company exclusively dedicated to supporting Georgia playwrights. On August 28th at Manuel's Tavern, the company will celebrate two new additions to their legacy, playwrights Aaron Considine and Anthony Lamar White. Their works will be performed at the Essential Theatre Festival in November. Anthony Lamar White joins me now via Zoom with the founding artistic director of Essential Theater, Peter Hardy. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Hi, thanks for having us. Peter, when deciding on future productions, what criteria do you look for in playwrights' works? I mean, the main criteria is that they be uh, Georgia residents. Uh, We occasionally do plays by writers who already are fairly established. But uh, most of the writers we do are fairly new on the writing scene. We just look for artistic quality, and that's a, a subjective judgment. Among the things that we look for are originality and a sense of authenticity, a sense that the writer is genuinely connected to their material, and just, you know, imagination and uh, truth humor, all the things that you look for in a play that when you want to go to the theater and you want to have a good experience. Anthony, would you give us a synopsis of your play, Calming the Man? Calming the Man is a play about the inherent anger passed from generations of Black males to the younger generations. Uh, The play is set in the 1970s, right after integration in a small town called Greenville. And it's about a father raising two sons. Uh, The father is uh, 
uh, he's an angry man. Segregation and living in the deep South has formed this angry man. And in a lot of ways, he has passed this anger off to his two younger sons who are struggling to break free of that anger. Why did you want to set this story in the 1970s? Well, I grew up in the 1970s. I, I went to kindergarten at a segregated school, and then I went to first grade at an integrated school. Growing up during the 70s, right after that, I saw a lot of the this anger I'm talking about. Uh, I saw a lot of it in my relatives, my uncles, even my dad. I thought it was something worth talking about, uh, focusing on, and how their anger was passed down to my generation, you know, and how my generation is essentially passing it down to the next generation. Yeah, 50 years later, we're still talking about the aftermath of segregation in black and brown communities. How does this play reflect the anger and frustration of those communities today? Uh, well, one of the things is, I know in my uncles and in my father, they were expecting so much a better life, uh, a lot of changes that they would finally get a piece of the pie, so-called pie. And when it didn't happen that way, they became bitter. My dad, uh, he he started drinking and he did a lot of things. And so I ended up uh, being raised by a single mom, you know, and that in itself was a result of all of that. You know, uh, some of the bitterness he was feeling about life after that. Hmm. The script has had numerous readings and workshops over the years. How has the storyline evolved since its first draft? Uh, well, it's, it's essentially the same story. Um, I'm an, also a novelist as well. And uh, I didn't actually study theater or playwriting. So a lot of what the workshops and the presentations gave me was the technical end of writing for the stage, you know. So that's what, what I really benefited from, and the, I think the story did as well. Hmm. Peter, let's talk about Raising the Dead by Aaron Considine. What's that play about? Well, interestingly, both of the plays that we're doing this year, uh, which are co-winners of the uh, 2021 Essential Theater Playwriting Award, which is a competition we hold each year for Georgia playwrights. But they're both about people trying to escape. In uh, Calming the Man, we have two young men who are, uh, I would say, are trying to escape the cycle of pain and rage that their father is just caught in. He's, he's trapped in that. And uh, Raising the Dead uh, is about two women, it's only two characters who are both uh, women of a certain age, as they say, who feel trapped in a kind of a living death. They feel invisible, that no one sees them, no one hears them, no one touches them, and they're trying to find a way to connect with each other and to escape from that kind of living death uh, and escape from that together. It's um, a very uh, a funny and uh, moving play, and uh, I just wanted to let people know that uh, Aaron Considine has five or six plays over the past year or so that have been given readings and productions all around the country. She's really blowing up. And mm. so you're going to be hearing a lot more from her. And her play is set in New Orleans? 
That's right. Okay, so we're covering the region with Anthony in Florida and Aaron in New Orleans, mm -hmm. or at least their plays. What can you tell us about the celebration at Manuel's Tavern on the 28th? Well, it's something we've been doing for a, a few years. It's really, I mean, it's an informal gathering. It's people who are friends and supporters of the Essential Theater and people who might know the playwright. We get together and really mostly a lot of it is just people talking and uh, uh, mingling. We do a fairly brief presentation in which we introduce uh, our writers, tell people a little bit about the plays they're doing. Our uh, festival passes go on sale. So it's the first opportunity to buy tickets to see the shows that we'll be doing uh, in November this year. Really a nice event. It's free. You know, we don't charge people money to come party with us. Mm. We just invite them. That sounds very democratic. What can playgoers expect in November at the annual Essential Theater Festival? Well, I think we're going to have two uh, excellent productions. We have very good uh, directors for each of the shows. We're just about finished casting them. It's an intimate space. It's a it's a 60-seat black box theater that we perform in at the, the West End Performing Arts Center, which is a Fulton County facility. We've been performing there doing our annual festival for, I think, seven years now. 2020 was the first year that we did not produce since 1999 for a uh, obvious COVID reasons, but we're really looking forward to uh, being back there. Uh, I think we really have two excellent plays this year. I mean, really, the Essential Theater is led by the playwrights who submit to us. They kind of call the shots in terms of what we do. Uh, both the plays are very powerful. Uh, I don't know how much humor there's going to be in Call Me the Man, but even in tragedy, you can have humorous moments. Raising the Dead is uh, more of a comic drama, I would say. They're both will be intimate, and I think we'll both really touch people. We're looking forward to uh, presenting them to the public for the first time. Will there be talkbacks or any ancillary events? I usually have talkbacks after you know, one or two performances of each play. We don't do them every night, but we certainly welcome feedback from people either in person there, just talking in the lobby afterwards. And there's many uh, chances for people to give us their feedback on our website or through social media. We always keep a good track of that. Peter, Essential Theater has been around for over 20 years now. Mm -hmm. What makes you most proud of its achievements? Well, just being around for over 20 years is one aspect of that. I mean, we've been doing new plays by Georgia writers since our first festival in 1999. They used to be we would also do other plays from around the country, but we would always do at least one play by a Georgia writer every year. And so aside from what I think has been a legacy of artistic experimentation and, and quality, that has been consistent and has been, I think, only growing. We have given opportunities to uh, new writers. Some of them had their first production from Essential Theater, and some of them have gone on to uh, very successful careers, Lauren Gunderson being the, just the first and most obvious example of that because she's been the most produced playwright in America for the past several years. But uh, I think it's what we've added to the national dramatic literature and bringing 
uh, Georgia playwrights onto the national scene. I think that's probably what uh, I'm proudest of. Essential Theater Artistic Director Peter Hardy and playwright Anthony Lamar White. The celebration of Georgia playwrights will be held this Friday from 4 to 6 p.m. at Manuel's Tavern. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, City Lights producer Summer Evans learns the history behind Slug Global. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. As an artist, it can be challenging to find ways of sharing your work with the world. And if you're part of a minority, it can be even more difficult. Slug Global is a marketing agency with a mission to elevate black and brown voices in the art world. Led by Bosco, the Atlanta-based R&B artist, Slug Global has been helping emerging creatives tell their stories since 2016. Bosco, along with Slug Global co-founder and art director Chibuo Carey, and content manager Kyla Bennis-Trapp joined City Lights producer Summer Evans via Zoom to discuss the agency. Bosco began with why she wanted to create the organization. Slug Global was inspired by the need of community and to feel seen in spaces that was not necessarily representing the type of work the type of voice, and the people that I was connected to. This was during a time where exclusivity wasn't a trending topic or it wasn't a catchphrase. I was in Atlanta during the time and I kind of just put out a bat signal. I was like, I know it's other quirky, weird, left of center, Black artists of multiple and various mediums that's like me. I just wanted to be around that energy because I wasn't, you know, celebrating at circus spaces. And I went to art school and I I was looking for like design jobs in Atlanta. And it was just, it was just getting to be a lot. So I wanted to start like a crew, like an art crew. Um, And it kind of just grew and developed over time. And that's when I met Chibu and I met Kyla, you know, just out of the need of like community visibility and all that. 
What's the story behind Slug Global? That's a very unique name. I've always been inspired by the punk scene and the skate scene. I think my first time getting on a skateboard was like around uh, 17, 18 when I was introduced at SCAD. I uh, met one of my closest friends, Sean Foy, the first week at SCAD. And he's like, bro, I can't on skateboard. And so like the word slug has always been, I guess, a part of that culture. And it also gives homage to the South where people pull inspiration and music and culture from the South, but it's always deemed or being seen as like slower than or the lesser paced city. But, you know, cities like Miami, New York, Los Angeles, even London, they pull all this inspiration from the South. I wanted to show like a slug is known to be slow, but we rise to the top. We're ahead of the culture. We're ahead of the curve. Right. And in reference to skaters, that's what they call, that's like the slang term for skaters that skate on the street. They're slugged, right? Honestly, I'll let Chibu kind of like talk to that because him and I, like I introduced the idea to him and, you know, we partnered on the branding, the visual identity, the language and all of that. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah, slug is grimy. No, <laughs> but, but I think it, in essence, it's just like the the word slug or like slugger, because that's how Bosco introduced it to me was uh, it automatically hit home on like the kind of like retro, like vintage tip of slug just being something like gross, but low key kind of cute. And I think that combination with uh, slug's identity from the beginning before like slug global. But even fitting now is that same message of, oh, yeah, we can be kind of like, you know, the essence of underground, unpolished, unfinished, like subcultures like skateboarding, rap, hip hop, and just like underground music scenes and all that. It could just be like, oh, yeah, y'all are some bottom feet. Like scrappy. Yeah, like you you lift (laughs) up a rock and you see a slug, you know, like that's like an underground scene. And what I thought was really interesting was all the people that are employed have their own creative artistic backgrounds. What unique perspectives do you think people that have an artist background can provide for their clients that is more of a personal touch? So we're artists creating for artists. We know like the language and what the culture wants. And I think that's what sets us apart because we're a crew and an art collective. So when these brands and corporations and sponsorships come hit us up to work on projects, we already are familiar with the community, with really what's going on. So it's almost like family, like we're reaching out to our network and connecting them with these dope opportunities because it speaks to the voice of the now. Kyla? All that. And also each of us as artists, we have like our own niche interests just naturally and our own aesthetics and our own like distinct eye on our own. And so bringing that all together, it's like this explosion which is slug and kyla can you actually talk about your background in the art community yeah well i am just self-taught i well i first met bosco because we were both living in atlanta and uh we were both in the diy art scene if you will um and i actually found her on tumblr and for those people that aren't familiar with Tumblr, can you explain what that platform is? Tumblr was like post MySpace, just like a very strictly visual platform where you just either posted images or reposted images. I guess that's the best way to explain it. It's like a big mood board. Um, but Bosco wasn't reposting images. She was creating content back then. So all her stuff was like original. She was she was doing like 
installations and like wow. gifs back then like, of her set like the original gif I forgot. I know you I forget what you did. Wow. Actually, <laughs> so I saw her back then. I had a jewelry line and she was a musician. So I was like, hey, do you want to wear some of my jewelry? Long story short, she ended up hiring me as her intern because she was working for this company called Fresh I Am. And she introduced me to a whole space. I didn't even know what event production was. I didn't know what art direction was, any of that. And so she introduced me to this whole world, which is Basically, our ethos is we create opportunity that doesn't exist. And Bosco has been doing that since I met her, but she didn't even, wasn't even thinking about it. You know, she just has been doing it. So then I moved to New York and I started working for a startup at the time called Elite Daily. And I had access to Photoshop and Illustrator. So I just got on YouTube and I taught myself how to essentially be a graphic designer. Bosco, I read in one of your interviews that you've done previously that you described Slug as the adult version of Nickelodeon. What do you mean by that? If you can remember, the sector after like the Nickelodeon, Nick at Night, what happened to those kids? There wasn't a bridge to kind of lead them. They went to like MTV, but then MTV started falling off and stopped playing music videos. So I was like, there is this ecosystem of all these displaced artists, creatives, tastemakers, influencers, what they call it now. Why can't we create a community for those people? So that's kind of how I describe it. But on the flip side of it, Chibu could talk to this. Those kids eventually grow up. So it's almost like Rugrats going to college or Rugrats going to high school, where we started out as super, super like fun, loud, Gen Z. But now we're kind of like maturing as artists in the industry and we're trying to figure out like, all right, yes, we're the adult Nickelodeon, but there's also like more to the story as we, as we mature in our crafts. I'll pass it to you, Chibs. Mm-hmm. Chibu? It is kind of like Rugrats all grown up. Maybe it speaks kind of to like, oh yeah, what is Tommy? Like when he grows up, what does he become? Because all of us, we met each other kind of at like the the beginning of us trying to do whatever we figured out we wanted to do. So I think that's kind of what helped us come to like how Slug Global is right now, where we're kind of focusing on like, okay, what's the bigger version of this? Like in 2021, 2022 or 2030, how does that look? Like, how can we translate this starter version of what we want to do right now? What's that Nick at Night version of this? <laughs> like, what's the, what's the evolution of what this could be? Like, what we had before this idea. I work in animation, so now Slug's reach in terms of like what animation can do, for example, is way further than what it was before. So it's kind of growing up with how we also evolved in our own concentrations. Right. Yeah, no, it's definitely evolved a lot over the last five years. And I can only imagine after the pandemic hit, I know a lot of companies started focusing on their digital platforms. How did that impact Slug Global? To be honest, we kind of were already just like online. We were existing in real life because when we started, we kind of were based in like Atlanta, a little bit trying to permeate the New York sector and stuff. But would you say like two years before, like a year before, it was kind of like, oh yeah, we kind of are just online. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
which is, yeah yeah which kind of fits with the name when we switched to from a uh, slug agency to slug global yeah it fit in so many ways where it's like oh we're the generation that experienced before the internet and then after the internet and then even the things yeah. that we're interested in had to do so much with technology when the pandemic hit everybody was in a panic it was crazy but honestly we were looking at what we what we were doing and we we're like well sheesh we already did right right yeah if anything it, i think it made our communication tighter we started talking more having meetings like zoom meetings more and we were just more in touch and that's when we created slug tv because of the pandemic i don't think that would have happened if we weren't in the pandemic because everyone was off once events were done we were like wait hold on we've got to pause we've got to figure out what's next and then it was like well let's try our hand at writing our first episode of slug tv can you talk about Slug TV, what that is? It's still like uh, evolving. But what we did during the pandemic was really inspired by like what we grew up on, like MTV 90s real world. And we loved all like the VJs like Ananda Lewis and Jesse and the kids, the, the people that we would watch after school on like TRL and MTV. So we took that inspiration that and created our own like animated comedy series that we put out on IGTV. So we took the new, what the stuff that was going on in the news at the time, like being in the pandemic and we put our own spin on it, a mini news segment on there. And yeah, it's all, it's all really fun and kind of based in an alternate reality, which is the world of slug that we created for ourselves. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's very minority driven, specifically black and female when it comes to employing minorities or taking on clients who are minorities and in marginalized communities. Bosco, why was this an important goal for you? Number one, competitive pay rates. I feel like black and brown artists specifically are poached for their ideas but not giving the opportunity to elevate or scale financially. Also, I wanted to shed light on giving them an opportunity to work with their competitors as well. But mostly, like I said, giving them credit, like giving, like giving the source and, the, and where people get the root of their inspiration, giving them credit. I just feel like I'm going to just keep it 100 with you, keep it above. In 2012, I was looking for art director gig, creative director gig, fashion, all of this stuff. I was going to these white agencies. I had at least seven no's. And I'm like, I don't see any representation in this company. I don't see anybody that looks like me. Fast forward, that was in 2012. We started Slug in 2015, 2016. And now we're just getting to the point in 2021. That's almost been 10 like 10 years and now we're just getting at the point where it feels like the ba- that there's some sense of balance there. So that's kind of like, was my thinking behind it. Uh, Chibu, what about like some of your experiences? Cause I feel like one of the reasons why you wanted to come to Slug because there wasn't those types of opportunities or you had to like get vetted or you had to be like, rookied into like a position so I'll let you I'll let you talk to yeah that. definitely to be honest like when I met Bosco I was like I just want an art job like I want to just draw for a living and do all this stuff nobody was looking for me like I got nothing and so I wanted to kind of just create my own job I had no idea what an agency was like I didn't know anything about that 
uh, I just was like, can I animate? Like, can I draw? Like, that's why I wanted <laughs> like, can I like work with art? Right. <laughs> that was honestly the only time for like years. That was like the only art, like official art stuff that I was actually doing was the stuff I was doing for Slug. For the most part, it was kind of just like, yeah, you do it on the strength that in the future, you're going to see something back from this. Right. It was a great right. experience to go through that. <laughs> At the same time, it's like, oh, yeah, like I was, we were working, we were developing Slug, like we were actually creating it and doing it at the same time. After a while, we, I was, you know, you're kind of working together as a group and you kind of look at each other like, oh, we really doing this project. And like, <laughs> after a while, it felt like, okay, yeah, how do we get past this level we're on? That was just always the idea of like, okay, what we did this, now what? I'll just add that like innately as a collective, we just know that diverse programming is as simple as putting artists of various backgrounds in charge of the curation. And then boom, there's the programming. It's not like that hard. It's just what we do organically. So it's like, that's just our mission, not even trying to be our mission. That's just what it's been since the beginning. Well, so do you feel that Slug tailors their services towards black and brown communities in a way that differs from, say, prominently white agencies? For sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, I feel like we're good gatekeepers, where it's like, all right, we're going to pass up the people that need this opportunity, that need the visibility, that needs this that needs this chance. And that's kind of how I see it. But Chief, I'm going to let you go. Oh, yeah. It's, it's along those lines, because we're all different types of brown and black in different areas and different cultures when you just focus on like the craft that you really love and like the thing, the cultures that you really want to be a part of, you naturally gravitate towards people that are like, oh yeah, we care about this too. So like, you're cool too. Like now you're seeing all these people that are like, were nerds and like really honed in on what they really love. You seeing them on top and bringing that back to what Slug introduces, what these big corporations don't got is that like we grew up in these like, subcultures and these like non-popular activities and all this other stuff we're all black and brown and stuff and growing up in that and seeing how we evolve to now these corporations they've just been doing their whole like white corporation thing for like decades and we've just been actually with the people that they would want to target this whole entire time and now that the society you know at least in the spaces that that we're in and that we see it's starting to be filled more with people like us like they're starting to starting to figure out like oh the things that are popping low-key kind of comes from this demographic we are kind of ignoring so lastly then what advice do you all give companies that come to you and they're looking to authentically incorporate black and brown voices into their strategic plan Inclusivity, I know it's the goal right now for a lot of companies or it's, uh, you know, it's popular, I would say. It's kind of like now just maybe companies feel like they have to be inclusive and that's not necessarily always organic. It could kind of feel forced at times, but I would just say it would go back to what I said earlier is like the programming, everything is as simple as putting people in the positions to curate. So if you want to be inclusive, then you need to have people in positions that can make 
decisions and that can contribute to your company. Yeah, and, and to piggyback off of that, it is like the thing that Kyla said about being kind of like, oh yeah, I think it's now everybody kind of has to do it because of the culture of like today's times and stuff. But I think it still comes down to like, oh yeah, just it's as simple as like, oh, get someone that actually loves this. Like get someone that actually is in this versus trying to like, you know, do Google image research or something like that and look up like, oh, this is cool. Let's try to do it ourselves. Yeah, like it's, it really does start behind the scenes. It starts like at the company because a lot of companies, well, you the face of it, the articles that they put out, the Instagram, it looks diverse. It, they're creating the image of inclusivity. But when you go to the company and you see who's sitting at the desks, it doesn't match. So if you want, you know, fill the seats <laughs> with the people that are passionate. Slug Global Content Manager Kyla Bennis Trap. She was joined by co-founder and art director Chibuo Kiri and Bosco, the R&B artist and founder of Slug Global. You can learn more about the company on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, Chef Vikas Kana nourishes our souls with his film, The Last Color. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Our next guest, Vikas Khanna, has traveled the world in his study of the connection between nourishment for the soul and nourishment for the body. From his Michelin-starred Manhattan restaurant and many other recognitions in the world of food, he has now turned his attention to filmmaking. Vikas Khanna's first feature film is titled The Last Color. Vikas Khanna, welcome to City Lights. Absolutely a pleasure. Thank you. The Last Color is based on your book of yes. the same name, and the story is heartbreakingly beautiful. Would you tell us about it? The movie is inspired by true events, and I had experience. I was shooting for a very huge book, my biggest book. It's called Utsav. We have 13 copies given to world leaders from Queen Elizabeth to Pope Francis to Barack Obama to Dalai Lama. So, so just... I just made the special books of Indian festivals, and while I was shooting the festival of Holi, the beginning of spring, I was in Vrindavan. It's a very old, historical, beautiful town, very close to New Delhi, and uh, I was shooting the, because that was iconic for Krishna's life and you know, Lord Krishna and the, all the epic of his life and his childhood. So I said, you know, we should go to the roots and shoot the Holi there. And we go to this most iconic temple called Banke Bihari Temple in 2011. I finished shooting, and I shoot all my books myself. I've, I've published, I've published 34 books. I've written 41 books till now, and I shoot the whole festival of colors with the colors dropping. It's like clouds, and it's eternal. It's very, very beautiful. But as we were walking out, you know, in the by lanes, I saw lines and lines of widows in white saris on the side of the lanes and 
in the balconies and terraces. It did bring back strange memories of having women who were widows in my neighborhood, my own home, in my own family. But that was too much for me because of the country which is known for its colors. Her daughters were colorless. Deprived of color. Deprived of, it just hurt me somewhere. And I asked the guy who was my guide, he's a very, very wealthy person's son, and who was by helping me navigate through the all the f- things. And he's saying, oh, don't look at them. They're inauspicious. They'll bring you bad luck. And, okay. And he said that to me. And I know when I looked at one of the ladies there, because I do a lot of television in India. So, you know, I figured out an easy way out when people are staring at you. Just smile back to them and say thank you. So I was used to that mode. And I saw this elderly lady. She must be 90 plus, And I... I just smiled at her and she joined, folded her hands and she bowed and she looked at me with this gratitude of, thank you, I'm not invisible, you oh. smiled at me. And something happened to me, I do not know what happened to me. I'm that that rough guy in the kitchen who wants everything perfect because who had a dream of getting a Michelin star in his lifetime for Indian cuisine. But I was used to that regiment of organized work and 24 hours worth ethics and, you know, that kind of work. But she just interrupted my entire life and I felt that I was in coma and she just woke me up with that gratitude. And, you know, they age very differently because these women who live in the ashrams and, you know, they're left by the families there and they just spend the entire life there and they don't have proper diet so their bodies age differently and I just couldn't get over her hands and you know hunchback and when she looked at me that was those empty eyes and she just was thanking me for just smiling at her it was I'm like in a desert yes. it's magical that a, something a spring arrived in my life and I wrote the short story which was never published and then in 2013, after the Supreme Court of India passed orders for rehabilitation of these widows, they played holy for the first time. And oh, it's captured so magnificently in your film. And we must touch upon this gorgeous story of a little girl. Oh, Choti means tiny. And that's her name. And she is a Dalit. We show that she's an untouchable from that thing because you know I know this is a very hard story to tell about your own country but when you saw the disparity and the pain and then the resilience and the victory and it just was like this is worth celebrating so after my father passed away I was hiding in Varanasi it's an ancient the oldest living city in the world I want to apologize for to your listeners because it's emotional so no I, I already have a bad like you know not a very clear accent and then Sometimes I don't stress on perfect V's and W's. And so as I was hiding in this big city, which is also called the city of rebirth and city of the dead. And so it's a very ancient town and very religious. It's the center seat of Hinduism in a lot of ways. And I was hiding there trying to find closure for my father's death. And I had little ashes in my hand, which I didn't put in the water. Instead, I gave the river a flower. And I was just trying to recover because, you know, I, there was a crazy life which I lead, you know. And 
the life of an internationally renowned chef and meeting world leaders and celebrities and here you're humbled by this. By this little girl. It was after Kumbh Mela. So I was in Allahabad. I was crossing. I used to just keep walking and sleep on the boats on the river and I was just trying. I needed something and you know, my the guy who was rowing my boat, he would tell me that, you know, my river is your mother so she is going to rock you to sleep and and she's singing lullabies to you. And it was just, I'm like, I'm doing my third PhD. I can't believe, I can't believe this. But you've got to have belief as an artist. It could be. And this little girl who was a tightrope walker, she comes and asks me for money. And she says that, you know, I can walk on the clouds, fearless. And I was not paying attention. And she says, I said, she was so bright. I said, why don't you go to school? And she's saying, you know, last year we saved money for my school, but these people who were the river bank, they tricked us into gambling and we lost all the money we had saved. So I said, how much money was it? And I gave it to her. And as she was leaving, I asked her that, uh, hey, Choti, which means a tiny little one. I said, if you'll go to school, what you'll have become? And she looked straight into my eyes and she said, sir, I want to become a police officer because I want to teach everyone a lesson of justice. But then she kept staring. She wouldn't, she wouldn't stop staring at me. And I was embarrassed and ashamed. And I just looked down and I'm like, oh my God. She knows it for her to rise. She has to be educated. She was so aware. And I did everything to find her, but I couldn't track her. So I had to audition a different girl who looked similar to her. And we had, she had to learn how to walk on the rope. And, and she's walking on the rope in the movie. And, really? you know, yeah, and she had to learn all these three, two months of acting classes we did with her. But she was brilliant. She was not professional? No, I went to her school for some other work of my from my foundation. And I saw her. She was the most disinterested person in the audition because she thought I was visiting a school, so I might bring something to eat. So <laughs> I just, she looked so similar to that girl, but she is, she's going, to, I've never seen someone act so well. I've never seen someone act so well. She's amazing and opposite a veteran actress. She's India's top actress, Nina Gupta. Yeah. Yeah. I convinced Would you her. talk about their interaction uh, offset as well as on? Most of the dialogues are from my life and uh, in the movie about when they, both of them, they fall in love with each other. So my grandma, I used to be a extremely child who was born with certain natural disabilities and I would always be bullied in school and you know I'll come back home sometimes broken teeth and bleeding and all those things. So my grandmother would always tell me that remember sun shines every day and then there is a day of the moon when it will eclipse such a large sun. People remember the day of eclipse. And when when you put oh. your hands together you form a crescent. Yes. And she says from today on, half crescent is mine and half is yours. So. And she sees it with the water in the end. We can't give the climax. I stopped the camera. I didn't want to overemphasize that she's running for the holy day. She's trying to about to drink water and she folds her hand and she sees the moon. It's it's so stunning I, I, I there are things i i had to keep pausing the film because i wanted to write down things that are ours always find a way back to us and i was hoping because that you would speak about the river ganges dance this was a stunning part of the film it took us three days to do that 
Really? Yeah. And it took us a month of planning to do that because, you know, I was doing on low budgets and there's no green screens. So we had to coordinate Nina Gupta, who's the main actress, dance, because a little girl puts a nail polish on her finger toes and she brings life back to her with color, which means spring. So everything is symbolism. And, you know, when I was interviewing ladies after they played Holi, I went to Vrindavan and I was so excited and everybody saying, what's the big deal? I said, you don't know anyone who's deprived of color and being a chef, my entire life is about color, how nature gives us the produce and everything has this distinct color and character. So these women got the color back, you know, after the end of a dark era, finally spring has arrived. And I went to the ashrams for interview and this little lady, she was so cute. I just posted a picture of her on Instagram a few days back and I said, I did not know a small conversation could change my life. And she, she, I started laughing. She said something because she was like maybe three feet, five inches. And she's shorty. She's shorty. That lady was, she must be in her 90s. And she said that, you know, I used, to, oh, don't underestimate me. I used to dance like Radha. And my grandfather would say that son rises just to see his beautiful daughter. So I had to coordinate the entire dance sequence with the sunrise that today the river is also happy because her daughter is dancing after years. And as she's dancing, you know, this is... <clears throat> so I learned the dance first and we had a choreographer and me and Nina Gupta were practicing in the night before the dance. And Nina Ji is like, you know, there's no in-ear, like there's nothing in the ear. I can't coordinate with her. I'm hiding <laughs> under, the, <laughs> under the roof. So she's on her own with the camera. And she's like, oh my God, because this has to be precise because I wanted her to dance at the level of when the sun rises. So the sun is behind her and then she, she begins to dance and it's an imaginary holy with Radha and Krishna. And then she begins to become emotional because she's feeling the color on her body and she starts to cry and the little girl says, what happened to you? And then they move in circles and that's how the movie even ends. Another exquisite aspect of the film is when uh, Noor, who is Ms. Gupta's character, when she talks about Tagore's poems, would you read that poem by Tagore? And perhaps to uh, preface, this was a brilliant poet, early 20th century, very early 20th century. So Tagore was one of the first Asian to get a Nobel Prize for literature. And I've been obsessed with his poetry. But when I've, when, and I did not know everything has been written for Tagore and how to admire his beauty of writing. And he talked nature like a real person, as a mother and nurturer of rains and snows and everything. But I didn't know how to give a tribute to him. So when I was writing the dialogue, which Nina Gupta's favorite dialogue, I said, you know, Nina Gupta tells to the little girl, you know, my grandfather used to say that even River Ganges flows to Tagore's house just to hear his poetry that even rivers change the direction where the poet lives. I thought this was one of, Nina was so, like, you know, she was like, I love this dialogue. I said, because Choti is going to use this later. When, when, when we can't tell that, but this was. So Tagore wrote this, one of the most inspiring poem, poem, and this is the last two lines of the movie. Where the mind is without fear and the head is held high, where knowledge is free, where the world has not been broken into fragments by narrow domestic walls, where words come out from the depth of truth, where tireless striving stretches its arms towards perfection. 
where this clear stream of reason has not lost its way into the dreary desert sand of dead habit, where the mind is led forward by thee into ever-widening thought and action, into that heaven of freedom, my father, let my country awake. I get goosebumps every time I oh, teach yes. it because Nina Ji was like, when she said that Choti, just remember these two lines from Tagore. And she says the first two lines and the way she said it in the end, you know, I was in the dubbing room and I I still choke when I think about oh, the end. How can you not? And to think almost exactly a hundred years separate when that poem was written and when the law was finally passed that widows no longer were to be deprived of color and forced into this blank life. It's such a marvelous testament to the triumph of justice over tragedy. And also, um, I think it's remarkable not only for the lawyer, uh, I don't want to spoil too much, I don't want to spoil anything, but there is a triumph in the character of Choti. And also a journalist, you know, it took me back to the Watergate year. <laughs> me too. You know, that movie just came out when I was writing the script, you know, that entire thing. And I said, my God, journalism can have such an effect that they can actually dethrone a president. I said, yeah, but this journalist will have the power to dethrone that entire corrupt system. And <laughs> I loved it. Well, And all women, all women were rising. Yeah, I, this is just about the most pro-feminist film to come out anywhere in recent years because, I mean, not only in India, but um, I, I love how color became a symbol for victory, freedom, and rebirth. Rebirth. You've honored all of this, and I congratulate you on this magnificent achievement. I mean, people who see this will think, oh, yes, this is a gifted filmmaker, but they don't know about your, your Michelin star necessarily or um, all your other achievements. All the people you've cooked for, mm, can I say the Obamas and the Dalai Lama, to name a few, but your dedication to elevating those whose names aren't famous and who literally are not even seen in some parts is noble. It's my thank you to that lady who woke me up by her gratitude. I thought it's a, it was my promise in the movie. You see the word promise is used a lot of times. Yes. It is my promise to her, to all the... And when she splashes the color, every time I begin to cry in the end because I feel I splashed all those colorless daughters of my country. I splashed... I wish I knew that what was going on was wrong. I was too young. And when you don't call out these things, they're considered normal. Even when the widows in our 
neighbors and families they were never invited to see a newborn child oh. and never invited for festivals or weddings i wish this was wrong and you know because everything was considered normal and i wish my next generation watches it and if they ever see this discrimination we should take them for dances we should include them in every festival we should tell them to wear color because they are beautiful and they are daughters of the country which is known for its colors filmmaker and michelin star chef vikas khanna his feature film the last color is streaming on youtube and apple tv more information is on our website wabe.org/citylights you've been listening to city lights our daily exploration of arts and culture tomorrow at 11 a.m. we'll go for a dip with red speedo the new production at actors express if you miss part of today's show you can catch up on our website wabe.org/citylights There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelly Kenevy. I'm your host Lois Wrightsis. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter. at l o i s r e i t z e s you can also follow us on facebook at w a b e city lights thank you for listening to w a b e atlanta's choice for npr Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org/donate and become a member right now. And thank you.